Hey, sickos. I'm LJ. And I'm Tao. And this is... Say Psycho right now. So glad to have you all here. Oh, we sure are. And boy, do we have a doozy for you today. Yes, I know that Toe has been pouring over resources for a couple of weeks now to get this case ready for you guys. And, you know, usually when we do cases, one of us will do the primary, like, research and reporting. And the other mm -hmm. one, like, kind of isn't, like, entirely in the loop on the situation unless they happen to have like known about the case before and yeah. personally like i know about the murdoch murders just in general very I'm sure we all i'm sure we all do to some extent this has been like you know in the news recently exactly so i've like i've caught headlines but i haven't done like deep research or even really watch documentaries on it because I was like, oh, Toe's doing this one. I just want to hear what she has to say. So thank you for being that for me. So sorry that you have been because I know it's been a lot. So thrilled to be that for you. So without further ado, like we, like LJ said, we are going to get into the Murdoch case today and basically just a brief overview we're we're gonna go you know we've all heard the headlines about the murdoch murders about alec murdoch killing his wife and son maggie and paul but we're gonna we're gonna start back a little further because i think it's important that we look into the history of this family and the events that led up to these murders because it's it's more it's a lot more than just murder here so without further ado, I'm just going to jump right into it because this is a really meaty case. So the Murdoch family is a prominent and connected family from the low country of Hampton County, South Carolina. It's this area is said to be the kind of place where everybody knows everybody and everybody absolutely knows the Murdoch family. Since the 1920s, members of the Murdoch family have been heavily involved with the local judicial system. And for 86 consecutive years, 
the title of solicitor of the 14th Judicial District was held by a member of the Murdoch family. And for context, that's basically like equivalent to like, it's a prosecutor. Okay. So it's like an elected role. I believe so. Yes. So for 86 consecutive years, I want to say up until 2006, that title has been held by some member of their family. The 14th Circuit District is comprised of five counties in the South Carolina Low Country, and as a result of the family's reign, became known at, by locals as Murdoch Country. Now, the main character in, you know, recent years has been Alec Murdoch, right? Born Richard Alexander Murdoch. He was born May 27th, 1968, to Randolph Murdoch III and Elizabeth Alexander Murdoch. He graduated from the University of South Carolina in 1990, majoring in political science. And in 1993, he married Margaret Branstetter, better known as Maggie. And he graduated from the University of South Carolina Law School in 1994. Soon after that, he did join the family law firm. So in addition to, like, in addition to working in the solicitor's office, his family also had a law firm. And he also volunteered part-time in the solicitor's office, uh, where at this point, again, his family had reigned for over half a century. Right. So he and Maggie had two sons. Richard Alexander Murdoch Jr., better known as Buster, was born in 1996, and Paul Terry Murdoch was born in 1999. Soon after joining the family firm, Alec made a name for himself representing members of the community in personal injury law cases and specifically his specialty was wrongful death lawsuits um ironic but okay (laughs) (laughs) well exactly and that's kind of why i mention it because it kind of becomes relevant at several points during this case as you can Mm -hmm. imagine yeah so that's just a little background on the murdoch family now let's we're gonna basically how i'm gonna try and do this is I'm going to try and go down the timeline that led to their fall from grace, right? So I'm, I'm going to try to keep it congruent. It, it's hard not to jump around a little bit because this case is really messy, but I'm going to try and keep the timeline as congruent as I can. So we're going to start here on July 8th, 2015. 19-year-old Stephen Smith was a former classmate of Alec and Maggie's eldest son, Buster. He was found dead in the middle of a country road in South Carolina. His car was found three miles away from his body, and it was out of gas. The case was initially invested by South Carolina Highway Patrol before going cold in 2016. An autopsy was performed, and it concluded that Smith died from blunt force trauma caused by a hit and run. However, his mother believes that he was murdered. And if you dig a little deeper, there's a lot of evidence to support this theory. Stephen's injuries included a large laceration to the side of his head, which was inconsistent with a vehicle strike. Mm. There were no skid marks or debris where his body was found. And the placement of his body in the middle of the road was said to have been inconsistent with a vehicle strike. Now, Stephen was openly gay, which is risky in the Deep South. Right. Some reports mention that Buster and Stephen were friends, 
there's conflicting reports on that. And some reports even mention that they may have been having a secret affair. And although the Murdoch family name was mentioned over 40 times during the course of this investigation, no member of the family was ever brought in for questioning and no arrest was ever made. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you have to realize how connected these people are. They can make problems go away very quickly and very easily. Not so much anymore, but at this time. Right. Now, interesting points here. It has been reported that Alex's brother, Randy Murdoch, has been linked to at least three separate attempts to derail this investigation. And do we have more information uh, on those attempts, or is it just like... No, okay. we don't. Now, so... What we know as of today, as of the time of this recording, is that this investigation into Stephen's death has been reopened following a discovery of new evidence during the investigation mm-hmm. of the murders of Maggie and Paul. We don't okay. know. We don't know what that evidence is. It, they're keeping it very tight-lipped at this point. Okay. But we do know that they found something during that investigation that made them say, "Hey, we need to reopen this case." Okay, that's valid. Yeah. So in we're going to fast forward to 2018, okay? February 26th, 2018. The family's longtime nanny and housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, died after falling down a set of stairs at the family's hunting property. You may hear this property referred to as Moselle. This family owned multiple properties, but this property is a key location in this story. Okay. At the time, her death was ruled accidental, but authorities reopened the investigation last year and they said that her body would be exhumed. Now, to my knowledge, I don't believe that's happened yet, but I believe the investigation is still ongoing. Now, at the time when this happened in 2018, Alec told investigators that he believed Gloria had tripped over the family's dogs and fell down the stairs. Although she's like far fetched to me, even without yeah, that's what I'm saying. So she did survive the initial fall, but she had major head injuries and twelve broken ribs, and Mm -hmm. she died sometime later at the hospital. And I guess she wasn't like conscious to give a statement from the sounds of it. Yeah, no, I believe she was in a coma. She was on life support for a period of time and then she did pass away. Now at her funeral, Alec Murdoch approached her sons and told them he wanted to take care of them. Mm -hmm. Now, keeping in mind here, Alec's legal specialty is wrongful death cases. Right. So Alec, he instructed the young men to file a wrongful death suit actually against him so that his insurance would pay out. He promised them each a settlement of $100,000 mm-hmm. and he set them up with an attorney. The attorney was named Corey Fleming and he agreed to represent them in this matter and he was a good friend of Alex. The, well, we're going we're gonna to get to what became of that case in a little bit because, again, the timeline. So, fast forward to February 23rd, 2019, Paul borrowed his father's 17-foot boat to go out with some friends. And from my understanding, this was, this was one of several boats because later in an interview, Alec would be talking about how 
you know, Paul was a little irresponsible and he would leave things where they, you know, he would leave things all over the place at friends' houses, Mm -hmm. you know, and he said he would do that with all of my boats. What? Yeah. He said that Paul would leave his boats places. So I I don't know how many boats they own, but presumably there were, there was an abundance of boats to be had. I mean, it sounds that way. It, It sounds that way. So he borrowed a 17 foot boat to go out with some friends. Now there were three couples on the boat, Paul and his girlfriend, Morgan at the time, Connor and his girlfriend, Miley, and then finally Anthony and his girlfriend, Mallory. Mm-hmm. Now they had planned to go party together. And it is said that this would be a typical night out for this group. Paul was a big drinker and his parents not only supported his habit, but they would even encourage it. And they often bought him alcohol despite his being underage. Now, before hitting the water that night, surveillance footage shows then 19-year-old Paul at a gas station using his brother's ID to purchase alcohol for the group. Now, the plan for the evening was to go meet up with some friends, hang out with them for a few hours, and then head back to the Murdoch family river house, not to be confused with their hunting property. This is another property, okay? So, while at their friend's oyster roast, Paul had allegedly been drinking very heavily, and people at this party were extremely concerned, and they advised Paul not to drive the boat back. In addition to Paul being shit-wrecked, it was extremely foggy, and the boat didn't have functioning lights. Right. So, Paul, of course, you know, being the type of person that he was... He refused the sound advice given to him as he was known to be cocky and even a mean drunk. And not only did Paul insist on driving the boat back to the river house, but he decided to consume even more alcohol prior to doing so. Of course he did. Of course he did. Because he's a rich little white boy that's never suffered a consequence for anything a day in his life. Yeah. May he rest in peace, but honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, surveillance footage from the local bar shows Paul and Connor being served shots despite being underage. And then by the time they get to the boat, it is said that Paul was incredibly intoxicated. So eventually Paul decides to start driving the boat in circles. Mm -hmm. His friends are begging and pleading with him to stop this damn boat. He's not listening. The, the girls especially are said like they're terrified. Right. Um, His friends also reported that he would repeatedly leave the wheel unattended to walk back and yell at his girlfriend. A real charmer. Sounds like a real winner, right? Allegedly, Connor attempted to take control of the boat, but he was unfortunately unsuccessful. And at one point, Mallory spoke up and asked Paul to take them back, but he refused. So around 2.20 a.m., after about an hour in the water... Paul sped the boat through an area known as Archer's Creek. And it said that this, this is like a really narrow winding waterway. Right. And it was here that they crash into the pillars of a bridge going over 30 miles per hour. Oh, no. Mallory, sweet Mallory, who begged him to turn this godforsaken boat around. She was sitting on her boyfriend's lap at the at the time of impact and she was ejected oh and i'm assuming she didn't make it no she didn't the group began to panic and connor called 911 
Now, when authorities arrived to the scene, Mallory was still nowhere to be found, and three officers that night actually had connections to the Murdoch family. Surprise, surprise. Shocker. Yeah. So, while EMS searched for Mallory's body, I mean, at this point, they knew they were looking for a body. Or they were pretty confident they were looking for a body anyways. Right. The other five uh, occupants of the boat were taken to the hospital, where Paul was finally administered a blood test. Right. And despite despite four hours having passed from the initial accident, four hours, you guys, Paul's blood alcohol content was still three times the legal limit. Oh, my God. So now at this point, allegedly, Paul's grandfather showed up to the hospital and went room to room encouraging the kids. I mean, they're legal adults, but I'm going to call them kids here. They're like 18, right. 19 years old. Right. Encouraging the kids not to talk to the police. But Paul also denied having been the operator of the boat, saying, stating, quote, why do you need to know who was driving? That's not going to help find Mallory, end quote. Well, because we need to know who to charge with her death, you fucking jackass. Yeah, but I mean, it just seems like he's so delusional with privilege. Oh, objectively. So uh, there was a lot of back and forth about who was actually driving the boat as you You'll recall Connor attempted to gain control over the boat, but was unsuccessful. And as a result of that, you know, which really sucks for this Connor kid because he was, his intentions were 100% pure. Right. But as a result of, you know, that his name was brought up several times as potentially who could have been driving the boat. Right. Connor would actually later hire a team of lawyers to file a civil petition claiming that the Murdoch family was trying to frame him for this accident. Yeah, I don't blame them. The petition also claimed that several police officers were involved in trying to frame him for this accident. I I would presume that this claim had merit based on everything else we're hearing so it did and and there was a lot of civil cases filed as a result of this accident i I, i'm not sure exactly on the results of those cases because everything kind of got derailed by the what should i say the subsequent events sure of the years to follow and, and I'm sure it will all be... So from what I understand right now is that the whole family's assets are being liquidated and there's a bunch of lawyers working on where all this money is to, to be going because this family fucked a lot of people over. Right, right. So I'm hoping that, you know, the victims of this accident hopefully will get a piece of the pie. That would um, be nice. I've seen, you know what some of these items are selling for and like for being a pretty wealthy well-off family some of the items that are being sold are pretty like shoddy but selling for astronomical prices and i was thinking like i hope the money is going to the victims but are they going to the surviving family members you know what i mean so yeah so well as as this case starts to unfold we'll see there's a lot of pending litigation against mm-hmm. them and I, my assumption would be anybody that has, you know, a legal claim to a settlement will sure. probably get a piece of this estate would, would be my assumption. That would be good. Yeah. Now, so the, okay. So we've gone over the petition that Connor filed. So mm-hmm. now the Coast Guard and a team of volunteers searched the marshes for Mallory's body for seven days. 
Um, oh, and on March 3rd, 2019, Mallory's body was found five miles from the crash site where she was initially thrown into the water. And we think that's probably just from, like, natural drift and stuff I'm, like that. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Now, it, it was no secret in this community that Paul was unlikely to face any legal consequences due to who his family was. Sure. Um, but Mallory's parents did file a wrongful death suit against the bar and gas station that served alcohol to the underage teens. And against Maggie and Alec Murdoch, stating that they willfully contributed to their son's underage drinking. Now, against all odds, on April 18th, 2019, which would have been Mallory's 20th birthday. Oh my god, she has the same birthday as me. Aww. Yeah. So, uh, Paul was indicted on charges of boating under the influence causing death and two counts of boating under the influence causing great bodily injury. Mm. I mean, and I'm sure other people on the boat were injured as well. I don't have a comprehensive list of those injuries, but I do know that they were all taken to the hospital. Right. On May the 6th, 2019, Paul pled not guilty to all charges. Mm -hmm. And the judge ordered a mandatory mediation between Paul and the Beach family, Mm -hmm. which didn't take place until June 4th, 2021. It's almost, God, over two years later. I was going to say, that's a fair amount of time. Yeah. And it was unsuccessful. Now, because it was unsuccessful, a trial date was set, but that never actually happened. Because three days after the mediation, Paul was dead. So, at 10.07 p.m. on June the 7th, 2021, Alec called 911 to report that his wife and son were both shot and were unresponsive. Mm-hmm. This was all taking place, again, at the hunting property, Moselle. Now, an important note here is that Paul tells 911 operator that he had touched their bodies to see if they were breathing. Sergeant Daniel Green, with the Culleton County Sheriff's Office, was the first to arrive on the scene that night. And his body cam footage shows a seemingly distraught Alec explaining to Sergeant Green that despite the 911 operator explicitly telling him to remain unarmed until oper- until authorities arrived. Right. He had gone and got a gun allegedly, you know, to defend himself if this shooter came back or whatever. Right. Now, why that's relevant in this case is that any gunshot residue found on his hands could potentially be explained by transfer particles from this weapon. Right. Um, and, you know, this is a hunting property, so there are guns and guns and guns and more guns. Right. The collection is, I, I wish I had a, an accurate count. I don't, but the collection is massive. Right. No, immediately Alex starts going into, he starts going on about the case with the boat crash and explaining that he believes that his family was targeted as a result of, you know, everything that's been going on with this boat crash. Because right. people people were outraged. Mallory was a very well-liked and loved young woman. Right. And people were pissed. People, people were fed up with this family and their bullshit. And they were rightfully upset that a, a young woman's life was lost. And this, this person was presumably not going to face any consequences absolutely so he told sergeant green that paul had been getting threats and 
he goes on to explain, you know, the whole situation. So Sergeant Green goes on and he asks Alec about when he got home. And at this point, Alec begins to provide a brief synopsis of his alibi for the evening, which he later went into much more detail on in his first official interview. Okay. So the interview here took place right there on the property in a vehicle owned by SLED. Now, SLED is a name that you're going to hear a lot throughout the course of this episode. And that stands for South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. And they are, from my understanding, you know, they're like the big boys that handle these massive like murder investigations and stuff in the area you know basically stuff that the local cops don't have the resources to sure deal with so alec so they're in this vehicle they're you know this begins the first official interview now alec claims that in the early afternoon he spent 45 minutes to an hour riding around the property with paul and waited for Maggie to arrive home from a doctor's appointment in Charleston. He claims it was pretty late until Maggie got home. And that the three of them ate dinner together. And that after that, Maggie and Paul walked down to the dog kennels. Right. Now, Alec goes on to say that he did not follow them down to the dog kennels. But rather, he hung back at the house and watched some TV, eventually falling asleep on the couch. Mm-hmm. He claims that he slept for maybe 25 to 30 minutes before going to visit his mom. Now, his mom lived about 15 to 20 minutes away from the property. And the thing is, his mother has late-stage dementia, and his father was hospitalized at the time. Alec proceeds to tell investigators prior to leaving, he did attempt to call Maggie and see if she wanted to come along, but she didn't answer. Phone records indicated that this this call was placed around 9.04 p.m., Now, he also said that he texted her, but she didn't respond. And he did mention that she didn't usually go with him to visit his mom, so he didn't find it all that strange to not get a response. But he also goes on to say that she's usually really good about texting him back, so it was a little odd, but not overtly alarming. He goes on to say that he made several phone calls on his way to his mother's residence, and he was only there for a short while before heading back. Now, I just want to talk about this timeline here because it gets muddled a little bit later on. Now, the phone call to Maggie went out at 9.04, right? And this is confirmed by phone records. And he texted her again at 9.47. And he claims that when this text went out at 9.47, that's when he began to head back. So 9.04 is when he left. 9.47 is when he began to head back. Factor in the 15 to 20 minute drive, he probably mm-hmm. got there around what, 9.25? Right. So that puts him there for maybe 20, 25 minutes. Somewhere okay. in that neighborhood, right? Um, he wasn't there for very long. Now, he goes on to say in all this time he hadn't heard anything from Maggie or Paul. When he gets back to the property and realizes nobody is up at the house, he, he gets a feeling something is wrong. So he drove down to the kennels to check up on them. And that's when he discovers the bodies. He says he pulled up and he could see it was really bad. And at this point in the interview, I can maybe link the full interviews, but 
he starts to get emotional. He's talking about how bad it was. He goes on to describe the condition in which he found the bodies, which is pretty gruesome. Once again, emphasizing that he did touch both of them. Now, he says that the first thing he did was run over to Paul and try to turn him over. He notes that Paul's cell phone popped out of his pocket and that he, quote, picked it up and tried to do something with it, but then quickly put it back down. He went over to Maggie and he says he checked for a pulse, even though he could pretty well see that she was gone. And at this point, he called 911. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I'm confused about the whole picked up the phone and tried to do something with it. Yeah, that, that's kind of where my head was at initially, too. Because I'm like, what what in that moment could have felt, like, time-sensitive or critical about, like, doing anything with their phone? Like, that wouldn't have been – other than, like, foreseeably maybe calling 911? Like – Right. But obviously, yeah. like, you had your own phone. Exactly. And, and that's where my head went next. It's like, okay, well, I could see where, like, maybe – if it fell out and you were like, oh, well, the phone right there, I'm going to call. But at the same time, like, you already have a phone, so yeah. just don't well, touch and- anything. It's a crime scene, you know? And, and you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. So you know that. Oh, that's true. So it's like an extra layer yeah. on a wrongful well, and- death attorney at that, right? Yeah. And what's funny is later on in the investigation, and I honestly can't remember which interview this was. There were several of them. But, you know... Alec talks about, you know, the police are trying to unlock Paul's phone and they start, Alec starts racking his brain. They're like, do you, do you have any idea what his passcode might be? Like we still, like he knew Maggie's passcode. So they were able to get into her phone. Fine. But he said that Paul kept it, his phone under lock and key. He said, I would be very surprised if anybody knew that passcode. So, you know, you obviously didn't have it. Like, why did you pick the phone up? Right. And I mean, I will say, and this is obviously, I don't really need to play devil's advocate here because I think we all know like where this is headed at this point. But just for the sake of like being a relatively impartial party, seeing as I don't know a ton about this case other than what I've caught in headlines and what you're telling me. Sure. You know, like the other day I was broken down, which whatever, won't go into the details of that. Bro- broken down? Is that what they call running out of gas nowadays? Listen, <laughs> it was a really rough day. Uh, so anyway, I was broken down. And, you know, I, I live in Florida, so my phone gives, like, the your phone's too hot warning, right? Yeah. And But it still gives an option for, like, is this an emergency? And I can press yes, and, like, I could foreseeably dial 911. Now, I was too ashamed of my situation to use that feature because I don't consider running out of gas to be, like, a 911 type of emergency. However, it was a feature that was available, and I think most phones do have, like, an emergency-only feature Mm -hmm. where you can utilize that. However, I think we can all agree that he probably had his own phone, and that's not necessarily where... I think the average person's brain would go in that type of a scenario, but that said, I realize that when you're in the midst of a trauma you know, you might not be reacting as rationally as usual. Anyway, that's sure. just a little aside that, like, I could maybe, if I was on a jury, give, like, a little bit of benefit of the doubt for that. If they used that as a defense, I'd be like, okay, like, I could see, yeah, you know, or, like, his phone was in the car. You know what I mean? Anyway. And, and that's the thing. There's a lot. This case is messy. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts at the end because 
it, 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 it's a hard case. It's not, this family objectively sucks. There's no doubt about that. Just as generally as, as human people, they suck. But, you know, as far as this murder, it's, it's not cut and dry. And that's, that's tough. So now after he got off the phone with 911, sorry, we're, we're, we're at the point where he's detailing what happened to the investigators. Okay. So he goes on to say that after he got off the phone with 911, he called his two brothers, John and Andy, and that he also tried to call a close friend that lives nearby, but he couldn't reach him. Right. Now he goes on to say that he had a great relationship with his wife and son. And that of course he and Maggie, they had problems here and there, like all married couples do, Mm -hmm. but overall they were just as happy as they could be. And he also, continues to bring up the boat crash over and over as a possible motive for these murders right now the investigators ask if alec had any issues with trespassers or break-ins on the property once again he brings up the boat crash and the alleged threats that paul has received as as a result he goes on to say that paul has even been attacked in public he's been hit and punched and so on and so forth and he's received threats online and after this, this is kind of weird. Alec goes off on this kind of random tangent about, and he brings up the groundskeeper for the property, a man named C.B. Rowe. And he goes on to tell investigators that this man allegedly told, had recently told Alec a story about how he was recruited by the FBI to kill radical members of the Black Panther Party. Okay. Yeah, it's really weird. I, I, it gives the idea that he's really trying to push the suspicion away from himself. Right. Because it's like, how does that doesn't equate to, I don't know, randomly murdering your wife, son. That's right. I mean, it's just obviously a shitty thing to be involved in, but like, I don't know very bizarre it's like we we hear people say all the time in other like completely different cases like you know people are convicted of murder because they were found you know with with drugs in their system for example and it's like okay well being on illicit substances doesn't necessarily make a murderer like hmm. you know it's funny you should say that because that's gonna come up in this case oh too. my gosh okay well oh for when sure in rome. <laughs> when in rome so you know three days later alex was once again corralled back into a sled vehicle and mm-hmm. questioned on the night's events so this time was he was a little less emotional and he was able to provide more detail Now, during this interview, Alec details the days leading up to the murder as well as the day of. Now, he names off Paul's closest friends and, you know, just people that might, you know, the investigators might want to talk to that might be able to give them anything. And they ask about Maggie and Alec's biggest arguments and Paul's greatest behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. The investigators ask him to start with the morning of June 7th. And Alec is having a difficult time remembering the exact details of his day at this point. However, he does proceed to say that he got up in the morning and went to work. But he came home a little early because he and Paul had plans to get ready to plant sunflowers the next day. Okay. 
he once again details that the family had dinner together and he says that Maggie walked down to the dog kennels and this time he says he's not exactly sure where Paul went, but just that Paul also left the house around this time. Right. Now he sticks to the same story as the previous interview that he stayed back at the house, took a nap, called Maggie, etc. Now he also adds that in between the time when he woke up from his nap and that he left the property, he remembers hearing a car pull up to the property and that he was certain it was Maggie or Paul. He says in the interview, quote, I was certain they had pulled up, but they didn't. And this agent asks, well, if you thought somebody pulled up, what did it sound like? To which Alec replies, quote, I can't tell you what it sounded like. I just know that I thought my wife had pulled up or that Paul had pulled up. I can't tell you what it sounded like. Yeah, I mean, because... I don't know. Like, I will say, like, I'm not a super observant person. I mean, obviously, I didn't realize my gas gauge was at nothing. So, this is a fact. You know, well, like, thank you so much, but I love you. It's not a quality about myself that I'm proud of. However, I'm just saying, I'm not super observant. But even so, I feel like if I remembered enough to remember, like, hearing a sound like a car pulling up, then I could have at least probably given a description of like, well, you know, it didn't sound like a lawnmower or a whatever. It sounded like a smaller vehicle pulling yeah. in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it didn't that, sound like a fucking horse and carriage. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, it sounded like a standard car or it sounded like a bigger truck. You know what I mean? I feel like you sure. can at least give investigators something if you remember enough to remember you heard the sound of a vehicle pulling up yeah so he goes on to say that he left the house very shortly after the ghost vehicle pulled up no pun intended on the ghost vehicle i was wondering (laughs) (laughs) Um, so and then he goes on to say that he on the way to his mother's home that night, he spoke on the phone with his brother, John, his friend and fellow attorney, Chris Wilson, and also his son, Buster. Okay. Now, Buster was out of town away somewhere at this point. And the investigator asked if any guns were stored at the gun, at the dog kennels. Jesus, at the gun kennels. <laughs> at the dog <laughs> I mean, might as well have been a fucking gun kennel, right? So, at the dog kennels, remarks that the guns weren't supposed to be stored out of the kennel, but he wouldn't. it wouldn't be unusual to find one out there. Mm-hmm. And he says that the entire family, but especially Paul, had a bad habit of leaving guns where they didn't belong. Just like Paul left boats about? Like, what is going <laughs> no, on? No, exactly. Exactly. That was that was part of this whole interview. Apparently, he left guns and boats and clothes all over the place. Okay, Um, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, that was habit the cat. So now, Alec did go on to say that he knows one of the specific guns used in the shooting, which was a AR style three hundred blackout rifle. The although the family owned at least one of them. It was definitely not out of the kennel that night. Okay. Now, the gun in question, we're going to talk, go briefly into this gun here. It was the one that killed Maggie. So they were, I don't know if I mentioned this previously, they were killed with two different guns. Okay. 
Paul was killed with a 12-gauge shotgun, and Maggie was killed with an AR-style rifle using 300 blackout ammunition. Okay, and at this time, do law enforcement officers have a particular belief or stance, like at this point in the investigation, as to if it was, you know, just two separate weapons or potentially two separate perpetrators? You know, they're not saying a lot at this point. This is only three days after the murder. So I I don't think they have a particular stance at this point. If they did, they didn't make it known. That's valid. Now, now the approach that they kind of took in this whole investigation, mind you, is that, you know, they're starting from the inside and working their way out. So they're like, we're going to start with the closest person. So Alec was kind of a person of interest the whole time that they were just trying Mm -hmm. to eliminate right so you know in these interviews are they are they gonna play i don't think they're gonna lay all their cards out on the table for alec to know what they're saying sure now just back to this rifle quick the so this is the gun that killed maggie again an ar style rifle with 300 blackout ammunition now alec had purchased two of these guns as christmas gifts for both of his sons in 2016 Paul's rifle was said to have been lost or stolen, and a replacement was purchased in 2018. Although there's some confusion over whether the replacement was actually purchased, because these people had so many goddamn guns they couldn't even keep track. Right. One source that I found said that, yes, absolutely, the replacement was purchased on this day, in this year, and then some sources say, well, we don't really know if a replacement was ever purchased. Now... Bottom line is the stolen gun and the alleged replacement have to this day never been accounted for. Okay. Uh, And so on August 11th, 2021, SLED brings Alex in for a third interview. This interview took place in an interview room, you know, like civilized people, not in a fucking truck. And also present was Alex's friend and fellow attorney, Corey Fleming. Do we remember Corey mm-hmm. Fleming from the Gloria Satterfield case? Yes. They are pals. They are just the best of friends. Now, it should be... N- Actually, no, we're not going to go there just yet. Now, Corey isn't officially there representing Alec, but the interview starts with him immediately jumping on the defense, claiming that they were under the impression that they were there for an update on the case, not to be questioned. Mm, okay. The sled investigator assures both men that he doesn't that he does have information to give them, but he has some questions first. Fleming doesn't like that answer, and he's just like, "Well, why can't we have the information first? Mm -hmm. To which the investigator replies basically like, listen, pal, just let me ask you these questions first, you know, and they go back and forth for a little while. And then they actually get into the questions or sorry, before they actually get into the questions, Fleming asked the investigator, are you asking him these questions to further your investigation or are you asking them because you think he's a suspect? Right. And he says, the investigator replies, I'm asking them to further my investigation. So Corey reiterates basically, so he's not a suspect. To which the investigator just goes, look, he just shrugs his shoulders. And he goes on to explain that at this point, he he can't rule Alec out. He's trying to rule Alec out, but he can't. Right. And they proceed with the line of questioning. Now, a lot of stuff that comes up in this interview is stuff we've already gone over at this point, and I'm not going to be a broken record here. 
However, there's just a few new little details that come up during this interview. Okay. The first, the first detail is that we learn from the day we learn that a video from the day of the murders has been discovered on Paul's phone that shows Alec mm-hmm. is, and it shows Alec and he's just messing around with this limp tree somewhere on the family's property. Okay. This now this. <laughs> I know that sounds like, crazy. Like why? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I mean, I guess it checks out. He said they were like riding around the property, like planning to plant shit and like do work. Uh, and so I guess he was just fucking with this tree. I don't know. Now the significance of the video is not the stupid tree, but it's the fact that Alec was wearing different clothes than what he had on when authorities arrived at the scene. Now. It was also later revealed that those were not the clothes that he wore to work that day. So he's changed clothes several times, and that's nowhere in his synopsis of the day. Right. But, and and again, you know, just kind of thinking out loud here, when you just have all this money like that, is that just like what rich people do? I feel like that's I mean, what rich people I do. I don't but. know. I'm like, I've never because been rich. Rich people weigh in. Is that what you do? <laughs> definitely I met. I have definitely met rich people that smell like they don't fucking change their clothes or wash their asses. So Sorry, rich people. <laughs> not at you not, personally. But <laughs> no, I'm not saying like, oh, like not that I've met a vast population of rich people. I'm just saying off the top of my head. I, know I haven't met rich, a lot. <laughs> I know like one or two rich people that have absolutely abysmal hygiene standards yeah Um, so when asked at what point he changed his clothes alec couldn't recall he had no idea so he changed his clothes a few times during the day but he didn't know when that happened i don't love that yeah i mean like i just feel like i mean not that it's a significant day's event but i feel like it's a question you should be able to answer yeah exactly and that's the thing like, for me like oh if been, i like, changed i changed when i got home from work okay that's a normal thing that normal people do sure or even just to be like like we were just talking about say oh you know i, I didn't even think to mention it but i usually change my clothes a few times a day just depending on what i'm I'm doing, and I did change yeah. my clothes, like, for X and Y. You know, that's just a normal like, part of my routine. Okay, fine. like, okay, my ass crack was sweaty. So, like, okay, great. You like, I respect that. Thanks for cleaning your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Valid answer, my guy. But he couldn't do that, and that's where the no. problem lies. He could not detail that information. So... <laughs> In this interview, a point that I also found interesting was that he claimed that he was at his mom's house at night for 45 minutes to an hour, which doesn't add up with the time frame that we were given in the first interview. And I just need to say that I find it equal parts interesting and appalling that, like, his primary alibi is a little old lady with dementia like i see you i see what you're doing yeah yeah exactly little shit yeah i mean that's that's a shitty alibi so no it would be determined that maggie and paul were killed between 9 and 9 30 that's evening right so you know that's the time frame that he was supposedly at his conveniently at his dementia having mom's right um let's see now just 10 days after the murders 
Alex Brothers went on ABC News to beg and plead that anyone with information in this case, please come forward. And on June 25th, 2021, Alec himself posted a $100,000 reward for any information that could lead to an arrest. Now, what's interesting, however, is that this reward had a deadline of September 30th, 2021. Oh, that's weird. I've literally never heard of that before. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck was up with that. But during the time between June and September, Alec never made any public appearances or please asking the public to come forward with any information. Right. Also, two months after the murder, solicitor Duffy Stone, which again, the solicitor's office, his family is heavily connected to. Sure. His family is no longer at this point serving as solicitor, but they're still connected. So solicitor Duffy Stone would have been the prosecutor. He would have been the prosecutor in this case. He recused himself from the case, citing developments in SLED's investigation. Mm. Now, you know, they, like I said, his family held the position in that office until 2006. And Alec at that time was still volunteering in the office. So when he questioned as to the reasons for recusing himself, Stone gave, he only gave very vague details and said, you know, it would be unethical for me to say anything. So we don't know why officially why he recused himself, but we can make some assumptions here. I'm sure. Right. Now let's go to September 4th, 2021. Alec Murdoch is shot in the head. Oh yeah. The gunshot wound, which was obviously not fatal, was said to have just grazed his head. In a 911 call, Alec can be heard claiming that he was driving when he got a flat tire. He got out of his vehicle to change aforementioned tire and someone stopped to help him. Mm-hmm. When he turned his back, the individual shot him. Mm-hmm. Now, when local authorities caught wind of the shooting, they began to follow the theory that the Murdoch family was indeed being targeted. However, it was not very long that this theory lasted. And one of the factors that contributed to the unraveling of this theory were the inconsistencies in the stories being released by Alec's PR team. Yes, he has a PR team. Of course he does. Of course he does. They claim that Alec had temporarily lost his vision due to this gunshot and that he was in ICU because his life was in danger. However, he was released only two days later. Hmm. Now, soon after that, he releases a statement that he will be resigning from his law firm and that he has been battling addiction for 20 years. And that he would be entering rehab. Now, (laughs) the truth is, is that the law firm actually asked for him to resign. And this took place on September 3rd, just one day before Alec was shot. And this was following the discovery of a check in Alec's desk, which led the company to dig a little deeper and find that he had been misusing company funds and stealing from clients. Oh, there it is. There. Oh, there it is. God. Following Alec's statement, his firm did actually put out their own statement, effectively saying, hey, we were made aware of the situation. Or, I'm sorry. Hey, we got rid of him because he was stealing. Hey. At this time, SLED and South Carolina Bar Association were made aware of the situation and Alex's license practice law was suspending pending investigation. Now, 10 day- yeah. 
Now, 10 days after Alec was shot, police did make an arrest in that matter. In fact, it was Alec himself who led police to a shooter. On September 14th, 2021, Alec confessed that the shooting was, in fact, a suicide attempt. Arranged in hopes that his surviving son, Buster, would receive a $10 million life insurance payout. Now, the shooter was 61-year-old Curtis Edward Smith, a former client of Alec's. And Alec claimed that Curtis contributed to his addiction and that he had been selling Alec drugs. And essentially, he jumped on the opportunity to help Alec off himself. Now, Curtis, however, told police a different story. Curtis alleged that Alec had set him up. And he alleged that Alec asked him to meet up and that it wasn't until he arrived at the agreed upon location that Alec asked, asked him to help him commit suicide. God, I knew the second that you gave like his account of what happened, I'm like, okay, well that's not what happened. So let's hear what actually so, happened. So I don't, there's a lot of confusion on that. So could, because to be fair, it, the, it's been stated as fact. And I, I don't know how they found this out. But I have seen it stated as a fact from several sources that Alec did pay him $100,000. God, but was it before or after the event? And that's that's the part that I couldn't figure out. I just kind of felt like, and I mean, again, you know, this is purely speculation. Like, I have no fact basis for this other than just, like, my opinion of who this guy seems to be as a person. But when he was, when you were recounting what he said happened, I was thinking, like, I feel like it's more likely that this was some type of, like, a blackmail situation, you know? Yeah. But, I have no idea. Yeah. Again, I just purely, like, chasing my feelings on that one. But, you know, Absolutely. whatever. And we welcome all your feelings. Thanks, friend. <laughs> Actually, that's a lie. We don't do feelings here. I was about to say, since when? I was like, that's the most supportive load of bullshit you've ever fed to me, but thanks for being that. If if, if LJ's sad about something, she'll be like, she'll call me and she'll be like, tell him I'm having a feeling. I'm like, wow, you couldn't have called any of your other friends about this. (laughs) God, yeah, we don't do feelings. I don't, yeah, we don't do feelings. So, um, now, Curtis goes on to state that he did refuse this request, but that that then Alec then made a move as if he was going to shoot himself, and Curtis attempted to get the gun from Alec, and it was during this struggle that the gun went off. Now, Curtis also told police that he was positive that the bullet didn't hit anybody, and allegedly he just got into his vehicle and drove off after this. Now, there was a couple who was driving by and said to have witnessed some of what was going on. And they did call 911 to report a man bleeding on the side of the road, but said that they didn't stop because they thought it seemed like a setup. And on September 16th, 2021, Alec ended up turning himself in on charges related to a suicide attempt and attempt to commit insurance fraud by, you know, unaliving himself. And his lawyers, of course, use his addiction as their primary defense, and he was released on a $20,000 bond and sent to rehab. But that is not all the scandal that September of 2021 
had to offer for Mr. Murdoch. Of course On not. September 15th, 2021, Alec was sued by the sons of Gloria Satterfield. Now, if you'll remember earlier, we talked about the unfortunate death of Miss Satterfield in the Murdoch's house who, quote, tripped and fell at their family hunting property. Right. Didn't he tell them to sue them? Oh, well, he sure did. And you're going to find out why. Okay. Because in true Murdoch fashion, he had an ulterior motive. I mean, I, I certainly assumed as much to begin with. I would just, yeah. I'm intrigued to mm. get to the bottom of that rabbit hole. Yeah, that's, that's where we're going. That's the hole we're diving into next. Perfect. So now it's important to note that Gloria worked for the Murdochs for over 20 years. And she and her family were very close with them. They spent holidays together. And she was also their nanny, and she helped. She played a huge role in raising Buster and Paul. Sure. And, you know, again, like we said, so he instructed her sons to sue him and said that if they did so, his insurance would pay them a settlement. And he connected them to attorney Corey Fleming, who also happened to be Alex's old law school roommate. Mm -hmm. So as their attorney, Corey convinced the young men that there were financial matters that would be better handled by a banker. And at this point, enter Chad Westendorf, the banker that Corey had entrusted to allegedly help the Satterfield family. Corey convinces the young men to appoint Chad as their personal representative and enabling him to make any and all legal decisions on their behalf in court. So yeah, you can see where this is going. So, Corey and Chad worked quickly and began negotiating to receive settlements. Only, the Satterfield boys were never actually made aware of these settlements. And only one day after being appointed as their representative, the pair actually filed a petition in court asking the judge for access to a potential set sorry, to a partial settlement in the amount of $505,000, while still being able to p- pursue additional insurance settlements in the same matter. Mm-hmm. So this petition was granted, but the sons never saw any of this money. The check arrived made out to Chad Westendorf as personal representative of the estate of Gloria Satterfield. Of the $505,000, Chad immediately stuffed 403500 Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, $403,500 into a bank account called Forge. Now... Later in March 2019, a second settlement with an insurance company was reached in the amount of $3.8 million, and once again, Gloria's family never saw a cent or was even made aware of the settlement. Now, keep in mind, also, they were initially promised a settlement of $100,000, and not right. only they, you know, I mean, these assholes could have even just given them each the hundred grand and st- pocketed the rest, and they would have never fucking sure. been discovered. Like, you want to talk about stupid criminals? Like, you made over $4 million. You promised them hundred grand each. You could have cut them a check for hundred grand. Probably, Absolutely. you know, been fine. But I digress. Not that that makes it right. But I'm just saying, like, you're fucking stupid. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the Forge account. Now, Forge was an account set up by none other than Mr. Murdoch himself. And it was set up in 2015 with the Bank of America as Richard Alexander Murdoch DBA Forge. 
DBA, for those that don't know, stands for doing business as. And it was intentionally designed to impersonate a little a legitimate business called Forge Consulting. And this business paid out victims who had won court settlements, actually. And the idea was to make it look as though the settlement checks he was receiving were going to a legitimate settlement consultant when in actuality they were going into his personal account. What a little shit. Yeah. So in October of 2020, Corey and Alec filed to dismiss the lawsuit, stating that all parties had reached an agreement. And Judge Carmen Mullen signed off on this and said she believed that the men had received their funds and all was well. Now, it should also be noted here that when the $3.8 million settlement was reached, this very same judge was asked by Corey not to file the paperwork associated with the settlement with the, with the county clerk, which would mean there would be no public record. Now, he claimed that this request was due to the boating accident that at the time had just occurred and that he didn't want to bring attention to, I guess, the Murdoch family's financial resources right now meanwhile the Satter the satterfield boys knew nothing about the settlements or about the case being dismissed and obviously we know now that that's the real reason why he requested that the paperwork not be filed with the county clerk right and it wasn't until alec began to come under scrutiny for stealing and misusing funds that they realized the settlement had even been reached in their mother's wrongful death case Right. So the Satterfield family did obtain a new new counsel and they filed a new lawsuit and thankfully a settlement was reached. And in that case, and Gloria's sons were ordered to receive all $4.3 million. Good. And it was also announced that SLED would be launching an investigation into Gloria's fall. And again, like I said, her body was set to be exhumed. I don't believe that's happened yet. Um, mm -hmm. But they are the investigation into her death is ongoing and uh, so we we appreciate that absolutely that's interesting yeah. though i didn't i'd heard in the headlines that you know that he had like definitively killed her which i mean it, it's pretty safe to say that i feel like based on yeah, the information I mean... provided but i just point being i didn't realize that it was still ongoing yeah and i should say judge I think she's facing some heat as well to what extent I, I'm not a hundred percent certain, but this, this runs deep. This runs really, really deep. I, I'm not sure if she's faced any formal discipline, but there's definitely some talk, um, about, you know, potentially her involvement in all this. Right. So on October 6th, 2021, Alex, former law for firm, sued him for the funds he had stolen from their clients over the years because glorious the satterfield family was not the only people that alec ripped off oh there was, sure there was a lot now on october 14th he was arrested and charged again so he was he was arrested on october the 6th but he was released i'm sorry i'm sorry no they sued him on october the 6th my apologies he was arrested the first time he was arrested was after after the whole shooting situation, and then he was released mm -hmm. on bond and sent to rehab. Um, now, on October 14th, as he was leaving the rehab facility in Florida, he was arrested again and charged in relation to the Gloria Satterfield case. He has remained in jail since then. Now, 
fast forward a good bit here on July 12th, 2022, Alec Murdoch is formally disbarred. And at this point, he is facing a grand total of 84 criminal charges and 11 lawsuits. Holy guacamole. That is a lot of charges. That is a lot of charges. And the the juicy ones didn't come until two days later on July 14th. Over a year. Over a year after the death of his wife and son, Murdoch was charged with two counts of murder. He was charged with two counts of murder and two counts of using a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Okay. Now, let's get into... Okay, so, of course, you know, he was charged. He's already in jail at this point, so it's just a new charge. And about a week or so after the charge, of course, he pled not guilty at his bond hearing. And eventually, the trial was set for January 30th, 2022. Or, sorry, 2023. Now, let's... I'm going to do a, a brief dive into the trial. We're not going to go too deep because number one, we've all seen it. Number two, trials are fucking boring. We already covered the juicy shit. If, if you want to go into the trial, be my guest, but that's, that's not what we're doing here. Yeah. And for my, um, for my understanding, like a lot of the information that we're discussing, like it's a part of the case like, mm-hmm. that's a lot of the same information that would be presented in the trial. So it's a matter of just, like, not being redundant, really. Yeah, absolutely. So, now, a couple things that came up with in the trial. And we're going to talk about here the, you know, we have to prove that motive means an opportunity, right? So, what the par- the prosecution would argue was the motive is, again all going back to this damn boat accident. So lawyer that the beach family had hired. Right. Um, in the, in the wrongful death case against Alec, mm-hmm. Mark Tinsley. So Alec told, had told Mark Tinsley that he was broke. Like, Hey, listen, I can maybe give you a million bucks, but I'm broke. sounds ridiculous so i think i'm pretty sure if if i remember correctly i think they were seeking 10 million and he was kind of like look i'm I'm a little strapped for cash i can maybe give you a million now mark filed a motion to compel which meant that alec would have to produce his financial records and prove Mm -hmm. that he was broke and this hearing was set to occur on june 10th 2021 which would have been just a few days following the murders. Right. Now, at this point, Alec had not yet been revealed as a thief and a fraud. Mm-hmm. And if this hearing would have happened, he absolutely would have been found out, of course. Sure. So the prosecution alleged that Alec killed his wife and son to distract from his finances and gain sympathy. Mm. Additionally, on the same day of the murders, the CFO at the family law firm confronted him learning that after learning, <coughs> pardon me, that 7,009, sorry, Jesus Christ, $792,000 in legal fees were missing. And she believed that Alec had taken it. 
I, I don't know if she explicitly said that at the time, but I think he knew he had taken it. And so these fees were supposed to be paid to the firm from attorney Chris Wilson's firm. Now keep in mind here that Chris is another close friend of Alex. They go all the way back like to high school. Right. Now this conversation was cut short when Alec received a text regarding the condition of his sick father. As Mm -hmm. it would turn out, Alec kind of spun the context of the text to fit his agenda and it turns out that his father's condition was actually improving. And this all took place just hours before the murders of his wife and son and just days before he was set to reveal his finances in a scheduled court hearing. Right. So the prosecution argued that Alex shot Paul and Maggie with different guns to avoid being caught and then proceeded to manufacture an alibi to lead investigators away from him. Now, the tricky part of this trial is that there is no direct evidence tying Alec to these murders. Everything is completely circumstantial. Mm. which you know checks out he's a lawyer the guy's not stupid as much as he acts stupid he's not now additionally the state would not know until the pretrial motion starting started whether or not alex financial crimes would be admissible in court for this murder case right now of course alec and all his you know rich old white dude glory had a solid defense team of experienced lawyers Mm -hmm. and they based their defense on a botched investigation by sled a lack of murder weapons and a solid i'm sorry a solid alibi (laughs) girl said in some salad in some salad god a solid alibi that's what they call a salad. A salad. <laughs> that is what they call a salad. God, are we okay? I could go for a salad right about now. A good big fat Orlando salad. God, come to mama. For those that don't know, or the city of Orlando is just killing it. The restaurants are killing it in the salad department. They really are. I don't know what's Honestly, going on. I don't know what's going on down there, but there's just every restaurant has like some variation of big beautiful juicy salad <laughs> fly to me come, come get your green <laughs> honestly so but i i can't believe that's what they call a solid alibi but anyways and additionally a direct they also based their defense on a direct testimony to alex character right which you know they attempted to paint him as a loving father and husband who was incapable of murder. Now, this is, we talked about this earlier, this is where this comes into play. So, part of their whole strategy was to admit that he was a liar and a thief and a drug addict, but that, despite that, he wasn't capable of murder. Got um, it. That's full circle. Full circle moment. So, the trial lasted for six weeks, and there were 75 total witnesses called. Mm-hmm. I think there was something like over 200 potential witnesses, but ultimately 75 witnesses were called. Wow. Now, in total, five jurors were removed over the six weeks of the trial, leaving only one alternate when all was said and done. How many? Five jurors were removed over the six That's weeks like of the trial. pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, I'm going to just go over some facts that we discovered during the trial that 
you know, is not stuff we already know from the investigation because we don't sure. want to be broken records here. We learn. Surprise, surprise. Alec lied about his alibi. Oh, shucker. He had previously told police and others that he hadn't been to the family's outdoor dog kennels on the night of June 7th, right. 2021, in the hours leading up to the murder. But a video on Paul's phone recorded his voice near the kennels mm-hmm. minutes before before the deaths. Oh, wow. Uh, when he was called up to the witness stand, Murdoch did acknowledge that that was his voice. But he continued to maintain that he had been fully cooperative with the police investigation other than lying about that one small detail. Right. Which is like, why lie at all? Well, yeah. I mean... You're Unless just so forthcoming, Alec. Guilty, guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Of course, he primarily blamed his erratic behavior before and after the murders on his opioid addiction. And he claimed his consumption of as much as 2,000 milligrams of oxycodone a day in the preceding months had left him with paranoid thoughts and that he also just trusted the police and did not want them to consider him a suspect. Uh. Right. So... Now, on the flip side, he also denied manufacturing an alibi. And this is where it gets confusing because he says, oh, well, I did lie, but I didn't manufacture the alibi. I was about to say, but isn't, you just acknowledge that you lied, so therefore. This is where you're like, okay, you know, all the evidence is circumstantial. There's nothing directly tying him, but this man is fucking lying left and right. Right. I mean, what are we supposed to think? honorable right now no not at all i mean despite the fact that he's a shit human being like overall just like from the jump you know he's also just like lying and lying and lying and lying so of course prosecutors did allege that he tried to create an alibi for himself by making numerous phone calls and a high-speed trip to his ailing mother's house immediately after the murders were later deemed to have taken place Yeah. So, I mean, which could add up because they said that, you know, Maggie and Paul were killed between 9 and 9.30. That supposed mm-hmm. phone call went out at 9.04. Right. So he could have very easily shot them at 9 o'clock. Quick made, you know, quick made a call. It checks out. So, yeah. now, of course, he denied those allegations and maintained that he did not discover his wife and son had been murdered until he returned from his mother's house to check on them at the the kennels. Right. And prosecutors were like, bro, your story doesn't add up. No, Um, it really doesn't. You you were there at the kennels minutes before they died, but not present when they were killed. Not able to hear the gunshots. Like, it didn't make any sense. Right. Now, an expert forensic engineer did testify that it was possible that someone in the house at the Murdoch estate may not have been able to hear the gunshots at the kennels. This is a 1,700 acre property, I believe, so it's quite large. Expansive. That's massive. So, and Murdoch has claimed that he was in the house at the time of the murders and never heard the multiple gunshots. Right. Now, neither of the murder weapons believed to have been used in the killings, again, have been recovered by police. 
mm-hmm. but they do believe they were likely the family's guns. And a forensic ex- expert did testify for the prosecution that the spent casings found around the murder scene matched older spent casings found at the estate. Okay. Again, this is a this is a hunting property, so I'm sure there were spent casings all over the place. Sure. Finally, at 6.41 p.m. on March the 2nd, 2023, the jury reached a verdict of guilty on all counts after less than three hours of deliberation. Wow. I love that they just all, like, got in a room and were basically like, are you guys good? Just, like, sending him to jail for life. And they were like, yeah. Bet. (laughs) You want to grab a snack after this? Yeah. They're like, actually, we could have a snack now so it doesn't seem like we deliberated too quickly. (laughs) absolutely that would, be the, that would be the thing that would, would be what i would be doing I'd be like do you guys want to order a pizza <laughs> yeah we've got to make this look like we had a real good chat <laughs> yeah get some doordash real quick so judge clifton newman who knew murdoch for years before this trial addressed the court on the friday morning saying that he did not expect a confession from murdoch but right. he and he stated that the state did not seek the death penalty in this case but noted that quote your family has prosecuted many people in this very courtroom seeking mm-hmm. capital punishment in many cases for lesser offenses right and murdoch you know maintained his innocence throughout the entire ordeal and judge newman said quote it may not have been you it may might have been the monster you become when you take 30 40 50 or 60 opioid pills right and he proceeded to sentence alec murdoch to two consecutive life sentence in prison the maximum in the case well i mean bare minimum that's what he deserved it's not the death penalty bare minimum that's what he deserves so Going forward, you know, there's a lot to work out. Like I said, their their estate is basically being liquidated, and there is a lot of lot of people, a lot of lawyers working to determine where this money needs to go. You know, where they had a lot of victims and they screwed over a lot of people, and the Beach family, the the Satterfield family, and many many others definitely deserve a piece of the pie here so absolutely the money does not need to be going back into the hands of the family members who they were trying to make sure it got a nice cut of things before all of this came it just the victims deserve compensation here absolutely this family has enough money they'll be fine Yeah, they they just they're down to like their last couple million, but other than that, yeah, well, they'll be all right. Cover. I'm not worried about them. No, definitely not. So, that is the story of the fall of the Murdoch dynasty, ladies and gentlemen. Well, thank you so much for deep diving into that, Toe. I know that was a a big meaty case. It was a big old meaty boy. God, yeah. a team player. Well, I, can't I know stand myself. Been going on for like a while now. This has been a pretty hefty episode. So, do we just want to jump into the socials here, wrap things up? Oh yeah, socials are a thing that we have. You can find us on the Book of Faces at uh, 
that name. Say that psycho right now. Yeah, say psycho right now. Colon a true crime and paranormal podcast, and we have an associated um, Facebook group. It's say psycho right now, a true crime and paranormal podcast community. Mm, we sure do. Yes, we also have. All the essentials at Say So Say Psycho right now, including Instagram, TikTok, which by the time you're listening to this, we will be more active on TikTok. Yeah. That will happen soon. She said all the essentials. God, what a time to be alive. Fucking 2023. (laughs) God. And of course, Patreon as well. Um, Mm. Patreon. Uh, our tiers start at $3 a month. If you go with the middle or highest tier, which are 10 and $15 respectively, after three consecutive months of pledging, you do get a little tchotchke gift in the mail from us. Tchotchke gift? Yeah, a little tchotchke gift. Just like a little tchotchke. You've never heard that before? No. Oh my gosh, it's just like a little something something. I thought tchotchke was like a person. No, we are. There will be no human trafficking for second and third tier members. Sorry, guys. It's like a sticker, oh. a nice quality vinyl sticker. Spoiler. It's a sticker. Yeah, like just a little tchotchke. So yeah, I just thought tchotchke was like. I thought tchotchke was like a. I don't know a famous person that did something. <laughs> nope. Tchotchke's a sticker coming coming in the mail after three months of pledges for our second and third tier members. Great. Yeah. And people who pledge a sponsorship at any tier, including our three dollars, you guys do get access to episodes early. We send those to you early every week. Mm, and we try to. Sometimes Toe fails at that, honestly. No, but we do our best. You, hey, you've always done your part in getting them to people early. Sometimes yeah. it's not like, you know, four days as early. early as we like. We we yeah. aim for Fridays. Like we aim for Fridays. Yeah. And then sometimes it ends up being Saturday because keep in mind we both like work full time as well. So we far, sure do. yeah. So far, we have lost money doing this. <laughs> so and we've loved every second of it. Yeah, I mean, we we're loving it, so it's great. But not um, as much know, money as we lost that one time at Target. Oh my God, we are not talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> God help me. So yeah, if you guys sponsor us as patrons, that would also help us though, because I mean, the the more money we hopefully end up making off this in the long run, the sooner that we can get those things out. We always try to prioritize it because we appreciate the sponsorships that we do have. But you know, the the more patrons that we have, the easier that it will be to do things like this. And aside from that, our bonfire campaign has ended at this point. It was kind of a precursor to our Murdoch murders. So there will be no more bonfire shirts. But by the time you're listening to this, you can access our store at saypsychorightnow.com. And I will say, you know, Toe and I have kind of had different roles as business partners often do when getting a company off the ground. Well, Toe we sure has- have. Yeah, Toe has been like our editing icon. She's been 
amazing with that. And like, I have to give so much credit to her. She has really been pulling some major weight in that department. Oh my and so good at doing you things. really are. She just like picks up these niche, like little, like really marketable skills. <laughs> like, a lot yeah. Of them. <laughs> yeah. Do I, maybe we should do a full like special edition episode for patrons on on toes niche skills that would actually be hilarious we should because like you a, have enough of them to make like a little little get to know us episode yeah. about toes, toes niche skills and lj's irrational fears oh my god why do i get the irrational fears episode hate that because that's my identity <laughs> I'm sure I could think of something else. It was just in the she's moment. Like, I was I was trying to think of something weird about you, and I would be like, and I was like, oh, she's afraid of the freezer. <laughs> she's also afraid of gas stations hence breaking down on the side of the road. Gas stations and freezers. <laughs> and I was like, yep, that would be a great episode. That's that's my quality content right there. My brain can't handle the sound of the crunchy, crunchy. I'm just kidding. LJ has a, LJ has a lot of skills. She's a very talented person. God. I did do the store, so like I'm I'm proud. She of did, that. yeah. She did the store, and also anything that's related to communication with human people is like I would say at least ninety five percent LJ because I talk to people like a fucking uncivilized caveman. I would be like, listen, bitches, this is what we need from you today. <laughs> LJ LJ is gainfully employed. In the, you know, professional world. So she knows how to, like, act like a civilized human being. For at least 45 seconds. And then I hang up the phone with people. And I'm like, oh, my God, that one was a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So don't be shitty to service workers. How's that? (laughs) Don't be. I mean, is that... I don't think that's, like, the, the category of your job, but... No, it is. It's absolutely is it? like, yeah, because technically, like, my official title title would be licensed agent or customer service representative. So, um, see, yeah. I I would call you like fancy office person. Mm, thanks, babe. More people should yeah. call me that. I often get, "Are you the secretary?" I'm like, "No, bitch. No, that's not what I do here. No, it's not what I do here at all." And I'm the supposed to be the less feral of the two of us. I'm a real person. (laughs) No, hey, secretaries, we do love you guys. No, absolutely. It's just like if I put in the time and effort and the money into securing a certain license, and you assume that because I'm a woman answering the phone that I'm a secretary. Oh, 100%. Listen, when I tell people that I want to go to flight school, they're like, oh, so you want to be a flight attendant? Ma'am, sir, no. No. no that's and, not what I and want. No disrespect to the flight attendants out there. You guys are so fucking essential. Love you guys so much and you are so underappreciated. I acknowledge that you do a lot more than, you know, like serve drinks and stuff. Um, they're absolutely they play a vital role in the in the safe operation of a flight. But that being said, it's, it's just the it's the assumption. And you know that that's not a that's not a thing you go to school for. Like, yes, you go to training after you're hired, but it I, I don't know. I could go on for days about this. But yeah. point well, being, I mean, same vibes for like doctors and nurses and male and female 
you know, quote unquote, typical roles and teachers and you know what I mean? Let's just like stop gendering careers. How's that? Let's stop gendering a lot of things. Fact. All right. And we'll leave you guys on that for today. Stop gendering stupid stuff. Stop gendering stupid stuff. Don't be a fucking crooked little bitch. Uh, Don't let your kids drink underage and then give them a boat. Don't lose all your boats all the time. What the fuck? If you're doing that, stop it. Right. Stop losing your boats. Like, it's it's just not cool to be a boat loser. (laughs) Don't be a boat loser. (laughs) Keep track of your boats. Keep track of your guns. Love you guys so much. We'll see you next week. Bye, bitches. Toodaloo. Oh no, did we perform a fuckeroni?